our sermon text were a movie, this scene would open with smoke rising from a forest fire. The fire so devastating that only stumps remain where enormous trees once stood. Now those who have seen the prequel to this movie, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 10, uh, pardon me, 1 through 10, will remember that this forest is God's kingdom on earth. It's Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And the fire that has devastated this forest is the fire of God's relentless and unstoppable judgment that has fallen on Israel's relentless and unyielding wickedness. God has used enemy nations to judge his people. Israel, God's chosen people, those who had been given every opportunity under the sun, they did not trust God's kingship over their lives. They turned to their own ways, their own wealth, their own power. And this is the devastation that came from their self-rule. As they look at the smoke rising from the forest of stumps around them, they must be saying to themselves, Look what a mess we've made of our lives. But then the camera zooms in on one stump from which a branch begins to grow. The grace of God is bringing life in the midst of judgment and death. This branch symbolizes God's promise to raise up a king. A king who will restore God's kingdom and redeem God's people. Well, that's the scene in Isaiah chapter 11. I invite you to turn there with me, please. Isaiah chapter 11. Friends, the situation in Israel here in the book of Isaiah, is just a microcosm of the situation in the entire world since the Garden of Eden. And it happens to be the situation of every one of our lives, whether we know it or not. See, humanity as a whole, and each one of us individually, naturally, rejects God's kingship over our lives, don't we? We don't want anyone to rule over us. From the earliest days, not our parents, not our teachers, not our spouse, not our boss, not our God. Naturally, we try to make a go of it as the king of our own kingdom. That's humanity in a nutshell. Our proclivity is to set ourselves on the throne of our own life and declare, I'm king. And the result is that our way and our rule brings nothing but suffering and separation from God and death. And anyone with any sense has to look around at the world as it is today and say, our self-rule? Look at what we've done. We have made a mess of everything. But friends, the good news is this. God has not abandoned us to our self-rule. Amidst the devastation of our self-rule, God raised up 
King Jesus. And God restored His kingdom through King Jesus and is redeeming His people through King Jesus. Friends, as we study Isaiah chapter 11 today, my prayer is that you will see the glory of King Jesus and recognize that His kingship changes everything. Isaiah chapter 11. This is God's Word. Follow along, please, in your copy of the Bible. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. Those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah. Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west. And together... They shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Friends, 
That's God's Word. May He give us the grace to receive it and respond in faith. In Isaiah chapter 11, we see God's promise to raise up a king who will restore his kingdom and redeem his people. We're going to take a look at this promise this morning in three different ways. First of all, we're going to look at God's promise here in Isaiah chapter 11 itself. Then we're going to see how that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then we're going to see how the fulfillment of the promise in King Jesus changes everything. Absolutely everything. So first of all, let's take a look at this promise here in Isaiah chapter 11, all right? So you're going to want to have your Bibles open on your lap during this sermon. It will be helpful to you. I want you to see that God's promise has four important parts. Part number one is from verse one through five. Part number two is six through nine. Part number three is verse 10. And then part number four is verse 11 through 16. Each of those is a section that describes something about what God is doing in and through this king for his kingdom and people. So part number one in verse one through five, God promises to raise up a king. Now remember why God is promising to raise up the king. Notice in verse one, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. What we understand from chapter one through 10, the prequel to chapter 11 is that The judgment of God is going to fall on Judah in the south, on Israel to the north, and on their enemy nations. God hates sin, and God is going to judge sin, even the sin of his people, especially those people who are merely religious, merely national Israel, not people of faith and the covenant. Their relentless wickedness, having been given every opportunity, will now bring the judgment of God, which two or three times now has been pictured as a consuming fire. And if you've been listening during chapters 1 through 10, you've noticed that there's been a lot of forest, tree, wood, axe-type imagery, haven't you? God is using this image to show us that in the end, His judgment will come like a fire on the forest and it will consume the forest until there's only stumps left. But the promise of chapter 11 opens up, zooming in on one of those stumps the stump of Jesse. And God is going to raise up a branch out of that stump. So just imagine a charred and devastated forest, felled trees everywhere, nothing but death and stumps, and then one tiny little branch, a sapling, Green as the day is growing out of one stump. That's the grace of God. That's the hope of the covenant promise that God will raise up a king. Notice in verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots. I want you to see that this king is the shoot of Jesse. That's interesting. Because there has been one great son of David. 
pardon me, one great son of Jesse. Who is it? King David. And every other king of Israel has been called the son of David. No one's ever called the son of Jesse. Because King David is now the king of kings as far as Israel is concerned. But this king goes back to David's daddy. This king comes from Jesse, indicating that this king is not merely a son of David, not merely one like David, but a king better than, far superior than David, the king that David was supposed to be. Not only is he the shoot from the stump of Jesse, but look at verse 10. He is also the root of Jesse. Stick with the imagery. Verse 10. Not only is he the shoot, but he is the root. That means that this king is the origin, not just of David, but of Jesse. This means that this messianic king, this better-than-David king, is the father of Jesse, the eternal and supreme king of kings. In verse 2, Not only do we see his origin, but we see his spirit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest on this king. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Having studied now ten chapters, we know that every king in Israel has gone by the way. Most notably, the current king, Ahaz, is a wicked king leading Judah down the wrong road. King after king after king of the northern tribes in Israel, wicked. And then just in chapter 10, do you remember? It was the Assyrian king who was so arrogant that he said, all the generals of my army are the kings of other nations. I'm going to take down Jerusalem and their idol, their little god, like I took down every other nation and their little gods. This arrogant king of Assyria. All of these kings are now contrasted with this king. God's promised king who does not have a spirit of wickedness or a spirit of arrogance. But God's king, the one that he's going to raise up, look in verse 2. He has the spirit of the Lord. And notice these twin attributes. The spirit of God on this king enables him to have wisdom and understanding. Those are judicial uh, words. That means that he can rule. And judge well. Don't you want that for your king? The second set. He has the spirit of counsel and might. Those are military words. So in other words, this king has the ability to devise strategies and then the power to accomplish those strategies. The third set. He has the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Those are religious words. This king has a life, a spirit, a kingdom governed by love for God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Wouldn't you like to have a king like that? Wouldn't you like to have a president or a governor or a mayor or a father? or a husband, or a wife, like that.
That's his spirit. Verse 3, we see his reign. What's it like? Well, verse 3 says, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And because of that, because ultimately he fears God more than men, then he does not judge by what his eyes see. He doesn't make decisions based on what he hears. He judges with righteousness. So judging the poor is not hauling the poor into court. When you judge the poor, you actually protect them. When he decides with equity for the meek of the earth, he is making decisions based on what's right, not what the wealthy and influential class wants. He judges by truth rather than prejudice and bribe. His reign at the end of of verse 4, when there's wickedness and enmity, he'll strike. What weapon does he need? Nothing but his mouth. Nothing but his words. The breath of his lips, he'll kill the wicked. What a king. His spirit, his reign. In verse 5, his clothing, which is just another way of talking about his attributes. What is it that is most prominent about this king? Well, not his robe or his crown, but in verse 5, it's righteousness and faithfulness. Now note that it's two belts. That's interesting. Nobody really knows the difference between these two belts, but I like the image that the belt of his waist is the outer belt and the belt of his loins is the under belt. So you have the external clothing, righteousness, and the under clothing, faithfulness. Everything about this king is exactly what God wants for a king He is righteous. He is faithful. What a contrast to the kings of Israel and Judah. What a contrast to the arrogant king of Assyria. And friends, tell the truth. What a contrast to us. I'm not righteous. And on my best day, I'm still not faithful. This king is That's part number one, verse one through five. God promises to raise up a king. Why? Verse six through nine. Because God promises to restore his kingdom. So we see the the attributes of king, this king. Now we see what this king's kingdom is like. What is the kingdom like under this kind of king? Well, it's Garden of Eden all over again. Except this time, forever. So it's not Garden of Eden 2. It's Garden of Eden upgraded. It's the way it was supposed to be before we messed everything up with our sin. What does this king's kingdom look like? Verse 6 through 9 beautiful imagery that tells us the the curse has been removed from the kingdom and peace is restored. We like that word shalom because it goes way beyond just peace and it indicates the way things were supposed to be. This is the way God designed human life from the very beginning before we brought the curse of sin and death and hell. The, the imagery there in verse 6 through 9 of all of the animals, notice that, that it's the most vulnerable eating, living, and playing with the most vicious. And who leads them? Who has the supreme authority over them? Little tiny babies. Both the ones who are 
brand newborn, like Teddy, and the ones who are weaned, like Ezzy. No more death. There is no more enmity between the son of Eve and the serpent who deceives. That's the kingdom that God restores through his king. You know what, friends? That's the kingdom that every one of us dream of, isn't it? Isn't that what fairy tales are made of? Isn't that what your favorite movie series is all about? One supreme king who brings peace to the kingdom. No more conflict, but peace. God's king will do that. Then we see in verse 10, the third part. First part, God promises to raise up a king. Second part, God promises to restore his kingdom. Third part, verse 10. God promises to reveal his glory. Where? Just in Israel and Judah? No, 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 no. Read it, verse 10. In that day, what day? The day when this king rules? The day that the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal. So the word signal means like banner or flag. It's like a rallying point. So uh, back before you had cell phones or, or uh, you know, flare guns, the, the armies would set up flags, which is where we get capture the flag, right? So armies would set up flags as a rallying point. That's a signal. That's a flag. That's a banner. In that day, the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples of him, the nations shall inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. The nations will come to this king and see his glory. What does it mean to inquire? It's not, it's not simply just to go, hmm, I wonder what this king is like. When kings and nations come to a king, just like we read in Psalm 72, they come bearing gifts and giving honor and bowing themselves in humble servitude to the glory of a greater king. And if they don't do that, they come to war against that king. There's only two reasons they come, either for peace or for war. Friends, we see that fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? As the nations come from afar, bearing gifts and worshiping the king. God promises to reveal his glory, not just to tiny Israel and broken Judah, but to the nations. There's hope there, American. There's hope there, European. God hasn't abandoned us. God has included us and invited us. Come see the glory of my king. Bow yourself. Place yourself in servitude to him. Part number four. Just as he's raising up a king, restoring his kingdom, and revealing his glory, God promises to redeem his people. Verse 11 through 16. Verse 11 through 16. Did you notice all of the nations and places that are mentioned here? God is going to redeem his people out of all of the nations of the world so that they'll come to the, to the banner of King Jesus. And then what? Well, let's see. Look at verse 11. God will gather his people to his king from every nation. Verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. How gracious of God to do it a second time. To recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, etc. Verse 12, 
he, the Lord, will raise a signal. What do you think that signal is? Verse 10. The root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal. The Lord will set up his king as a banner, as a rallying point for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Oh, I love that imagery. God extends a gracious invitation to the entire world to come and worship and be in subjection to his king and notice specifically who he calls back those who have been banished those who have been dispersed Friends, when we threw off God's kingship over us, we forfeited our right to be in the presence of God and live in His kingdom. And do you remember at the end of Genesis chapter 3 what God did? After pronouncing the curse on Adam and on Eve and on the serpent, God banished them east of Eden. And he put armed guards at the gate. Angels with flaming swords so that no one could enter the garden again. All of humanity has been banished from the kingdom of God ever since Eden. People are not born good. We're born sinners. We're not born right with God. We're born separated from God. We're not all God's family. We're all banished from God's kingdom. But the good news is God didn't leave it that way. God set up his king just like driving a flag on top of the hill. And he says to the nations, come and I will restore my kingdom right here and I will redeem you, banished ones, through my king. What grace. What an invitation to everyone. Look in verse 13. He not only gathers his people to his king from every nation, but verse 13. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. Those who harass Judah. Ephraim's not jealous of Judah anymore. Judah not. They're not going to harass Ephraim. Do you remember? The north and the south here in Israel are in civil war. What's the south called? Judah. What's the north called? Israel or Ephraim. So one of the things that God does to all of those that he gathers to the king is he unites them. There's no more enmity. No more jealousy. No more division. But God unites brothers and sisters, various people from all different races, all different backgrounds, People who shop at Walmart and people who shop at Target come together in Christ. Verse 14. What happens when they get together? Verse 14. I love it. God will empower his people over their enemies. Look here. But they... No more warring each other. They, Ephraim and Judah, come together. And what do they do? Like an eagle or a hawk, 
they swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines' notorious enemies. Together, they plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites, more of their enemies. And all of those nations will obey them. Man, is that good. See, God promises to redeem his people so that they come back and flourish the way he intended them to flourish in the beginning. Do you remember when God brought Adam and Eve into the garden? He said, you exercise dominion over all of these animals. And they did until we threw off God's kingly reign over us, said, we're going to be the kings of this place. And then all of a sudden, lions, tigers, and bears were exercising rule over us. Okay, fast forward. Do you remember when God reconstituted his people under the headship of Abraham and the children of Abraham were brought into the promised land? What did he tell the children of, of Abraham, Israel? He told Joshua, go around and all of these people, they're bigger than you, they're stronger than you, but you don't worry about it. You fight them. If they don't lay down their arms, you conquer them. I'm on your side. Don't be afraid. It worked for a little while until Israel decided, eh, we don't want to do it God's way anymore. We're going to do it our own way. Then all of a sudden, they're being reigned over. We want a king like all of the nations. God's hand pulls back. Here, when God redeems his people, he brings us together and he empowers us together to conquer our enemies. What enemies? Guy across the street? People in another country? No, 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 no. Our enemies are not people. Our enemies are sin. And not the sin out there, but the sin in you and the sin in me. Death and hell. And God empowers his people through his king to overcome our enemies together. Together. Verse 15 and 16. God promises to redeem his people. How? He will lead his people on the highway of salvation. The Lord, just like he did in Egypt, the Lord is going to utterly destroy the sea of Egypt. He's just going to wave his hand over the river and his scorching breath is going to turn this massive sea into seven little trickling streams that people can walk across in their sandals. Do you see that imagery there? The word channel is a little deceptive. This is a stream, a trickle. Verse 16, read it with me out loud. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people. Stop. What's Assyria got to do with this? Assyria is the one who conquered Israel to the north and took them in captivity. And God says, I'm going to make a highway for you. Just like I did for Israel when they came out of Egypt. I'm going to make a highway so that you can come out of captivity into my kingdom, be redeemed and be saved. Friends, God's going to raise up a king. Here in Isaiah 11, God is going to restore his kingdom. God is going to reveal his glory. And then God is going to redeem his people. And all of that was fulfilled in King Jesus. Through his cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession. All of it 
has been, past tense, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And yet, there still remains some that will be fulfilled. Finally, the full consummation when the kingdom of God is set up in the new heaven and the new earth. Just think with me for a moment about how this promise is fulfilled in King Jesus. God raised up King Jesus. Jesus was emphasized as God's king throughout the Gospels, especially as he neared the end of his life. Do you remember him riding in on a donkey, showing that he was the humble, submissive, seemingly powerless king? Do you remember Pilate's words that Jason read to us? Are you the king of the Jews? What was Jesus' response? You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And God raised up King Jesus on the cross as a banner, as a signal, as a rally point, and he invites the nations to come to him. Jesus' death and resurrection restored the peace and righteousness of God's kingdom. It's already done. It's already past tense, completed. Because Jesus put to death sin, death, and hell. Listen, all the things that are bigger than you, Jesus is bigger than them. He put to death sin and death and hell for all who will come to him at his cross. Therefore, what that means is those who come to Jesus Christ can have peace with God restored internally, even though the world still rages around you because we're still looking forward to the day at not the first return, but the second return of Christ when he comes back and sets up his kingdom on earth in a new earth and a new heaven and rules forever. When truly death is no more and lions and lambs lay down together and you can let your little babies play with snakes, but not until then. King Jesus has been raised up, uh, raised up. God's kingdom has been restored through him. His glory is being, note the words, is being revealed. How? You ever seen him? I haven't. How is the glory of Jesus being revealed to the nations? Through the preaching of the gospel and through the lives of the redeemed. That's the mission of the church. Together. Together, we reveal the glory of Jesus to the nations and the people. God's people are invited to come to him and be redeemed. And notice, just don't overlook those last words. What does God do when he redeems his people? He gathers his people to Christ from every nation. He unites his people in Christ all different backgrounds, and he empowers his people over our enemies together. And then finally, he leads all of us. King Jesus leads all of us on the highway of salvation. God made a promise in Isaiah chapter 11. God fulfilled that promise in the Lord Jesus Christ, both past tense and still yet future tense. And friends, that promise changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. If Jesus is king, if Jesus is God's king, then you either come 
to him in submission or you fight against him in rebellion. Which one are you? It changes absolutely everything. Think about it. It changes our worship. Verse 12. We're the ones who worship King Jesus because God raised him up and gathered the banished into his kingdom. Why do we worship Jesus? Verse 1 through 5, because he's a better king than every other king and certainly a better king than I am. Why do we worship Jesus? Because verse 6 through 9, his kingdom is the one we've always dreamed of, the one every one of our hearts long for. It's available in in Jesus. Come to him. And finally, we worship Jesus in verse 15 and 16 because only he can lead us on the highway of salvation. Only he can deliver us from the enemies that are bigger than us, sin, death, and hell. Every other king, every other person has been defeated by those enemies except Jesus. It changes our worship. Guess what point number two is? It changes our community. You see, recognizing that this promise was fulfilled in King Jesus, that Jesus is God's king and that through him, God's kingdom is restored, changes how we live together. We recognize that our truest community, our most intimate family, are the citizens of the kingdom, the members of the church. So verse 1 through 5, what do we do? We encourage one another to keep following this king because his rule, no matter what happens in your life, whether suffering or ease, his rule is righteous and faithful. And when we live in community together, we come to one another when we're suffering and we remind each other that our king is sovereign over this too. This is not all there is. And God never wastes a hurt. He is accomplishing enormous eternal purposes through suffering. Keep following King Jesus. What we also remind each other in times of ease, in times of leisure, not to fall away, not to love our stuff so much, and to live for leisure. Why? Because we receive these things with grateful hearts, and we use these things to advance the kingdom. Why? Because this is not all there is. It changes our community, friends. It, it reinstates peace and shalom here and now in our hearts and our homes. And we, re- we wage war on sin together. If you're waging war on sin alone, you're doing it wrong. We wage war on sin together. It changes our worship. It it changes our community. And finally, what do you think it does? It changes our mission. I say that to those of you who are new to our church because we talk about our life together in terms of worship, community, and mission. And the kingship of Jesus changes all of it. Listen, because God raised up Jesus as a signal for the nations, then joining God in that mission to raise up the banner of Jesus Christ and his gospel becomes our life mission. 
that gives singles something to live for that's better than marriage. That gives parents and grandparents motivation to teach their children the gospel of the kingdom. The kingship of Jesus changes our life mission. It it sends employees to work as representatives of the king. You're not there just to make sure that your boss thinks well of you. You're there to make sure that your boss and your co-workers see your king. This mission to raise the banner of Christ, it encourages neighbors to love your neighbors. Not metaphorically. Really love your actual neighbors so that they can see the love and the grace of your king through you and your home. And it frees Christians to get a hold of their money and invest it in the advance of the gospel around the world. The kingship of Jesus changes absolutely everything. Isaiah chapter 11. God has stepped into our darkness. He's raised up King Jesus to restore his kingdom and redeem his people. And if you see his glory, then it'll change absolutely everything for you too. That's my prayer. Let's go to the Lord together. Father God, I thank you that you have not left us in our sin, but that you raised up King Jesus, your son, through the brutality of the cross, You gave him a name that is above every name so that at his name every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that he is Lord. I pray that his kingship would be displayed through how we worship, how we live in community, and how we live on mission. Please glorify Jesus and advance the gospel through us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.